My bride is the second greatest thing in my life next to the gospel. I cannot describe how much I love her. I love her. I love her. I love her. She is amazing. She risked her own safety, evaded assault on more than one occasion to share the gospel in a country where the church is illegal. She helped the underground church and saw two Muslims come to Christ and came home. She is a fearless missionary. She is a warrior mother. She has shared the gospel after burying one of her children and she has continued to raise the other four with me in the word of God. She has loved me when I've been unlovable. She has stood, be, stood by me through my struggles and she has prayed me out of the pit on more than one occasion. She is amazing. She is my bride and I love her. I love her. I love her forever. Even if she were to forsake me, I would love her still. She's my bride. Even if she were to fail me, I would love her still. She's my bride. Even if she were to stop loving me, I would love her still. She's my bride. I give myself up for her. She's my bride. I would go to the cross for her. She is my bride. We've made a home together. It's full of our family. We're raising in Jesus. She is my bride. I love her. I love her. I love her. And that love, that love that a husband has for his bride, which husbands, I'm going to call on you. I'm going to call you to flex. All right. You got to step up. And you got to talk about how much you love your bride because we're reading about love in this text. And this book, Song of Songs, has moments that foreshadow the love that Christ has for his church. This is an incredible text. It's an enigmatic text. It's a difficult text to interpret because it is, it is riddled with contextualized poetry and imagery and pastoral references. Pastoral is in shepherding references that are often lost when translated, especially in word-for-word -word translations that take the Hebrew word and turn it into an English word. You often mess that up when you do that with poetry. It's better to take the Hebrew thought and translate it into an English thought. And then you actually capture a bit of the poetic imagery because in the original Hebrew, it's eloquent. It's perfect. It's not clunky at all. This book's title is sometimes confused. Wycliffe, when translating the Bible into English, rendered it Song of Solomon. And then that proliferated through various other English translations thereafter. And pretty soon you've got, you've got millions of Bibles that say that it's Song of Solomon. But if we go to the original Hebrew, as I read the original Hebrew, what I read is very directly, the Song of Songs, which is of Solomon. So the title is the Song of Songs. The which is of Solomon part could be interpreted a couple of ways. It could be interpreted as this is Solomon's writing. And I, I personally believe that it is. It but could also, however, be interpreted as which is in the style of Solomon, which is a tribute to Solomon's wisdom. So it's possible that somebody else wrote it, but included Solomon in the narrative. Right? There, it, it's, a, it's a poetic love song that has various voices that chime in. Okay, you'll see this in ancient operas. You'll see this in various other forms like Peking Opera, for example, does something similar that is uh, almost as old as this book. You'll, you'll see the title of, the, like the, the, the name of a character in the poem followed by the lyrics that person would sing. And the singers are comprised of the primary voice of the Shulamite or the woman 
secondary voice of the man, who was likely Solomon, a tertiary voice of these young women, a chorus that is chiming in from time to time, a possible fourth voice of a narrator, then uh, also uh, chiming in from the woman's brothers at the end. In the Christian Standard Bible, the different voices that are listed are woman, man, young women, narrator. Now this assumes that Solomon is the author and then the brothers in chapters eight, verses eight and nine. The King James Version does not attribute any given text to any given voice. However, the New King James Version does. The Shulamite is what uh, is, is refers to the woman. The beloved, who is the man. The daughters of Jerusalem, who are the young women. Some asides to his friends, meaning that the man is speaking to some of his friends. And then the brothers, again, in chapter eight, verses eight and nine. The New National Version is a little bit simpler. It's just he, she, and friends. But then the English Standard Version is he, she, and others. It's very ESV, I think. The, 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 there are possible views on the authorship of, Sol, of Song of Songs. One of them is that Solomon wrote it, and he is the lover. He is the man in the text. Another is that Solomon wrote it, but he's not actually the man in the text. I mean, he appears seven times in the imagery, but it doesn't necessarily mean that he is the lover of the man himself. And then the third is that someone else wrote it, in the style of Solomon's wisdom, including Solomon in the poetry. Now, ultimately, we could all disagree as to who the author is. That's, that's okay. You could still behold the heavenly author's incredible work. So we have to keep discussions about the original author in their, in their proper place, but the wording at the opening could be interpreted either way. The Song of Songs, which is of Solomon. I could see how it would be a little bit self-aggrandizing of Solomon to write something uh, in which he has the voice of his bride speaking about him in a certain way, unless she really did speak about him that way. But uh, we also can understand that it, it, it may not be Solomon because Solomon took on 700 wives and 300 concubines, right? So the chronology of where this book stands in the overall writings of the Bible and the writings of Solomon is important. Here's my personal interpretation, having wrestled with this, because I want to I make sure that I do my due diligence, but I also totally understand you are free to take a different interpretation on this. But for what it's worth, here is where I've arrived after my digging in the original Hebrew and reading thoroughly on everything that's been published about this. I believe that Solomon wrote Song of Songs and then Proverbs, and then after falling away, like 1 Kings 11 tells us, glutting himself on the things of this world and all of his vast wealth in that burnt out state in a bit of a beleaguered homecoming, he writes Ecclesiastes, which is why Ecclesiastes sounds the way it does. Sounds like one of our parents of one of our students. And when I taught through it a couple of years ago for high school camp said, it sounds like Eeyore wrote this thing. It's because it's Solomon after crashing and burning and then just seeing the utter futility of all the pleasures of this world. You hear that my secular friend? So I believe he wrote Song of Songs about his first wife. Now, there, there, uh, there are interpretive, interpretive implications to that. Because if he wrote it about his first wife, then the chorus, the young women who chime in, then these are not his harem, as has been, I think, most typically taught within this book, but they are the voice of a chorus because this is a song. I think what most theologians who have studied this are overlooking is something that I, I'm only aware of because the school where I got my music degree from is a very classically inclined school. And so they really entrenched us deeply into music history. And so I've seen works of art like this from ancient Egypt. I've seen musical pieces like this from other similar cultures about the same time 
wherein you would have a primary voice, secondary voice, and you'd have a chorus that chimes in. They are the chorus. And I, I think this lends a bit more of an intellectual coherence to the text. I think it makes the book more coherent in its own right. If this is about Solomon's first wife, um, before he wrote Proverbs, because remember Proverbs is to their, to his, originally to his sons. Uh, and if he writes it about his first wife, then the young women are not his harem. It becomes intellectually inconsistent within itself if the couple is talking about their love like a locked garden and then the man's harem chimes in. Or the, the primary verse that comes up thematically at the beginning and the end and the very middle of the book, daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the wild gazelles and the does of the field not to stir up or awaken love, meaning intimate attraction until the appropriate time. And she's saying this to her husband's harem? Like that doesn't make sense to me. So to me, the interpretive keys to consider are one, this is a poetic song, not about a love story, uh, not only about a love story, but also prophetic imagery about Christ and his church. Okay, I've read numerous commentators who just see every single syllable of this book pointing forward to Jesus. I don't think it's that Christocentric. I think it is a love song, but there are clearly moments in the book of Song of Songs that will point to Jesus. And I'll show them to you as we arrive at them. I think Solomon may have written it before his first wife, meaning the young women in the, uh, who, whose voices chime in together throughout the book are an audience from the community within the storyline of, of the song. They are the chorus that chimes in. They play a side role to the love story, whether, the, the, uh, whether Solomon is the lover in the story or not. And then third, if Solomon wrote it after his first wife, then it is still true despite Solomon's sin. Right? The, I, I believe that this book likewise has a chiastic structure. This is another reason that I've come to believe that Solomon's the author. I believe that you'll see some text at the opening that seems to describe how they would meet and first come together. And then you'll see at the end how Solomon was actually the architect behind their meeting the whole time. You'll see verses that appear rhythmically, equidistant from the beginning and the end, respectively of one another. And you'll see the way that in a palindromic sequence, it ends in reverse order from the way it began. All right, so that, that chiastic structure to me indicates that Solomon was the architect behind it. Right? First Kings 11 gives you some background information on Solomon. So wherever you arrive on who wrote the thing, here's what you gotta know about Solomon. King Solomon loved many foreign women in addition to Pharaoh's daughters, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them and they must not intermarry with you because they will turn your heart away to follow their gods. These women, to these women, Solomon was deeply attached in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 who were concubines and they turned his heart away. When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away to follow other gods. He was not wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord his God as his father David had been. Solomon followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the abhorrent idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight, unlike his father David. He did not remain loyal to the Lord. At that time, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abhorrent idol of Moab, and for Milcom, the abhorrent idol of the Ammonites on the hill across from Jerusalem. And he did the same for all his foreign wives who were burning incense and offering sacrifices to their God. If you remember the name Chemosh from Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, you are right to be utterly disappointed in what has happened with Solomon because you know that worshiping Chemosh included the most despicable acts, child sacrifice for crying out loud. This is what would lead to Gehenna. 
The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. He had commanded him about this so that he would not follow other gods, but Solomon did not do what the Lord had commanded. Then the Lord said to Solomon, since you have done this and did not keep my covenant and my statutes, which I commanded you, I will tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. However, I will not do it during your lifetime for the sake of your father, David. I will tear it out of your son's hand. Yet I will not tear the entire kingdom away from him. I will give him give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant, David, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I chose. So it was because of a promise to David that Solomon would have the kingdom torn away from one of his sons, yet even still being faithful to the grandson for the sake of the grandfather, one of Solomon's sons would still maintain one of the tribes. This is brutal, right? But I want you to know the story about Solomon. I want you to understand everything the Bible has to say about this man who wrote most of the Proverbs that we just studied and now is likely the author of the book we're about to study. Solomon's just like everybody else in the Bible who's not Jesus. He would ultimately fail the very words that God inspired through him. With that context, let's read the Song of Songs. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Oh, that he would kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your caresses are more delightful than wine. The fragrance of your perfume is intoxicating. Your name is perfume poured out. No wonder young women adore you. Take me with you. Let's hurry. Oh, that the king would bring me to his chambers. Welcome to Song of Songs, Highlands Community Church. This is the opening statement that comes from the voice of the woman. The chorus chimes in, we will rejoice and be glad in you. You see that same language elsewhere in the Psalms. We will celebrate your caresses more than wine. The woman says, it is only right that they adore you. Daughters of Jerusalem, I am dark like the tents of Kedar, yet lovely like the curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark for the sun has gazed on me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me take care of the vineyards. I have not taken care of my own vineyard. Just a few verses in, you can already see that this is very rich poetry and it requires some contextualization. We have to understand what it originally meant in order to know what it means today. It means the same thing that it originally meant But in order for us to apply our lives to this text, in this context, we have to grasp what was at play in the original context, which in this case is Hebrew poetry, Hebrew love song lyrics, which can be difficult to interpret. And you can miss a lot of the references if you don't know what Kedar is, if you don't know what it means to be dark in that culture, if you don't know exactly what she means when she describes a vineyard, for example. It is very clear that the love is palpable. I mean, like that dude who wrote the notebook has nothing on this. Okay, like this is incredible, incredible love. This couple is deeply in love. And if you're single and you hope to be married one day, words like these can cause you to pine for a spouse. But I want to encourage you As we go through this book, you ready your heart, okay? Let it indeed inspire a biblical standard and a hope for your marriage one day. This this book was the most incredible thing that my bride and I went through together while we were engaged in preparation for marriage. But understand 
if it stirs up and awakens love in you that it's not the appropriate time for, don't mistake the pain of loneliness as a single person as though it were greater than the loneliness of a married person. It is, it is hell on earth to be married to someone who is radically out of the will of God. So just like the woman in this text is gonna tell you, wait until the appropriate time, wait until the appropriate time. She speaks about her, her man in such grand and incredible term. She has such a high opinion of the man that she loves. And she says, take me with you. Let's hurry. Oh, that the king would bring me to his chambers. If that verse makes you blush, buck up, because this is a book that is so intense that it was actually forbidden for young Jewish boys to study it before their 13th birthday. Right. In the course of Jewish history, as the bar mitzvah and the bat mitzvah would eventually come along and be implemented, it was, it was agreed that after a 13-year-old Jewish boy's bar mitzvah, he would be allowed to read this book. So we're going to try to speak about it in Pixar terms, in video and in person, but stay tuned. We do have some more resources coming up for married couples and single people where we can delve into this in greater detail with less of the Pixar effect. But you guys know what I mean when I say the word intimacy. <laughs> Did you notice in this text that she's self-conscious, that the woman is self-conscious? She says, daughters of Jerusalem, I am dark like the tents of Kedar, yet lovely like the curtains of Solomon, which were purple. Right? The, the cedars of Kedar were dark brown. The curtains of Solomon were purple. She's self-conscious about how dark her skin is. And this is not some sort of this is not some sort of slur against dark skin. Rather, it has to do with the original Hebrew culture that she was forced into labor by her family to work in the vineyards. And as a result, she bore on her body the marks of hard labor, which culturally publicly indicated to everybody that she was in a very low caste within the societal system. So she's self-conscious about how she has worked really hard in the vineyard, but she's neglected her own vineyard. Can anybody relate to that? Ladies, can you relate to that? You just spend all of your time taking care of everybody else, taking care of what your family needs and you neglect yourself. Do you see your reflection in the Shulamite woman? And care for your own vineyard too. Care for your own vineyard as well. She says, I've not taken care of my own vineyard. And she asks in verse seven, tell me you whom I love, where do you pasture your sheep? Where do you let them rest at noon? Why should I be like one, one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? Huge cultural implications to this verse. Why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions. It is, it is fascinating to me how these cultural trends remained true until very recent in human history. It's a common practice of prostitutes to follow shepherds veiling their faces and selling themselves to the, to the shepherds. In fact, that practice would carry on across the millennia, even into even into the Civil War era. And we have a, a, now a common colloquial term that's synonymous with prostitute as a name that was given to the women who would follow the troops of General Hooker in the Civil War, veiling their faces. She's referring to that practice. She's asking, why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? I, I'm, I'm blessed by her humility and her self-respect. 
She's openly candid about the ways in which she's insecure, dark I am, yet lovely. It's, it's, it's cool to me because you're going to see how he then speaks to her right there, precisely at the source of her insecurity. This is, this is beautiful. He, he meets her right there and he, he ministers to her beautiful words of affirming love. And it's not manipulative. It is sincere. Take note of that. That is vitally important. The predator capitalizes on the weaknesses of his prey, but a man loves his bride, in this case, perhaps his bride-to-be. He loves his bride despite her actual flaws and sees through her perceived, self-inflicted perceptions of inadequacy. Husbands, you tell your bride, who is the mother of your children, that you love her stretch marks, okay? You tell them that she is a warrior tigress and she's earned her stripes. You speak to her and you actively and intentionally love her the way she wants to be loved. And then you'll see Ephesians 5 is absolutely true. It's absolutely true. When husbands love their brides, those brides are more likely to respect their husbands. Take note of the incredible esteem and respect that she has for her husband or perhaps her husband-to-be, depending on the chronology that you take. And then observe how that just flows naturally with the tenderness and the intentional love that he shows her. Look at the very next verse. Verse eight, if you do not know most beautiful of women, follow the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats near the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Husbands, do not tell your wife, you look like a horse. <laughs> You're not quoting Song of Songs. Pharaoh's chariot was pulled by the limpazoner stallions of the day, okay? And to say that she was a mare, that she was the most beautiful of anybody else who was out there at the time. Your cheeks are beautiful with jewelry, your neck with its necklace. We will make gold jewelry for you, accented with silver. Verse 12, get ready. While the king is on his couch, my perfume releases its fragrance. The one I love is a sachet of myrrh to me, spending the night between my breasts. The one I love is a cluster of henna blossoms to me in the vineyards of Engedi. This, this book is very clearly about intimacy. And it's about intimacy between a man and a woman who at this point in the narrative, I believe, have met and they are very deeply flirting. It's very clear that they, she wants to know where his, she, she wants to know where she could find him, but she's refusing. She's refusing to veil herself like the women who follow the shepherds. And then he engages her with some of the most beautiful and sincere expressions of love that there are. And then you can see, you can see in verses 12 through 14 that she reciprocates, that this is, in, this is indeed wanted, that there is an intense, intimate attraction between the two, that they long for intimacy with one another. And if you interpret the chronology that says they're not yet married at this point, but Solomon is the king, given the way that she refers to the king on his couch in verse 12, then they long to be together, but they're waiting until the appropriate time. Just wait till we get to the last verse that we're going to study today. 
future husbands, you can't fake this, okay? She will know if you're faking it. And then brides, ladies, look at the way that she speaks about her husband or her husband-to-be. I mean, it is, it, she holds him in what would seem like higher esteem than he holds himself. And these two, these two interaction, you know, uh, forms of interaction are mutually complementary one to the other. It's Ephesians 5, love and respect. Husbands must love their wives. Wives will respect their husbands. I could see that echoed in the relationship here between the husband and the wife. It is absolutely incredible. These words are ancient, but this love is palpable and it's true. And that love that the husband has for his bride, even looking past what she describes as imperfections, is so much like the love that Christ has for the church, which we see is even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Despite our imperfections, he loves us. He loves us. He loves us. Do you hear that, my skeptical friend? Does that sound good to you? Come on in. Come on in. May you become a part of the bride of Christ today. She refuses to be like those who veil themselves and follow the shepherds. Why should she have to act like a prostitute to get him to look at her? That's a fair question, isn't it, single ladies? Why should you have to dress like a prostitute to get a man to look at you? You don't. You don't compromise your holiness. You be like the Shulamite woman in Song of Songs, okay? She has standards. She will not cross the line. Right, she is, if, if you have to compromise your integrity and your holiness to get a man to look at you, then he's not fit to lead your future family spiritually. Take her example. Why should I be like the women who veil themselves and follow the shepherds? You take measures to protect purity in a dating relationship because the proper time is your wedding night. And any other time, it's dangerous ground. when my bride and I were dating, I was a single youth pastor and a drummer. And I had like one day of the week that I would try to reserve as my, my, my day off. And that became <laughs> International Jesse Day, as we called it, because my bride's name is Jesse. I knew that in pursuing her, it was going to be a different ball game than what I'd experienced when I was like a student at Florida State. I will never forget this. I was a single youth pastor and I went to my parents' house and, and I walked in and my mom was there and she had a cup of coffee and I saw on the counter, strategically open and creased open, uh, was a copy of the, the Florida Baptist Witness, this publication that helps you pray for missionaries and churches around Florida. And it was strategically open with a certain, <laughs> very specifically captivatingly beautiful young missionary named Jessica Lynn Knott centered right there in the middle of the page. And it was strategically placed on the counter right in front of me. And my mom saw me walk in and between sips of coffee, she just waited to see the right look in my eye. And she said, you know, I was, I was talking to her mom. It, stuff happens when moms talk. All right, husband, like, uh, moms and dads, you remember, you're, we may not practice arranged marriage in our culture, but man, that doesn't mean that you're sidelined completely and forbidden from weighing in and giving wisdom to your children uh, regarding their relationships. <laughs> My mom was so slick about this. She left the Florida Baptist Witness open with a picture of a young missionary to Malaysia, Jessica Lynn Knott. And she said, I spoke with her mother, you know, 
And Jesse, you may be accustomed to women pursuing you, but that won't work with this one. And then she just took another sip of her coffee. Very casually, having set into motion a series of events that would lead to the actualization of my family as you know us today. <laughs> my bride had standards. And she's like the Shulamite woman. You know, why should she do anything to compromise herself, to, 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 to be noticed by a man? Why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? That is a fair question. And then she, uh, uh, she named a place in Gedi, in verse 14. Did you hear that? This is pretty cool. In my previous role, I commissioned a team to go to the Holy Land and, and capture VR moments from around the Holy Land. In Gedi is a really cool place. It exists today. It's on Google Maps. You can go there. You can explore it or fill out a connect card at highlandscc.org connect and it'll allow you to experience this virtual reality segment of En Gedi with a beautiful waterfall right there. This is where David, Solomon's father, would go when he was fleeing when he was fleeing persecution, he was fleeing Saul, the previous king, or he's fleeing Absalom, one of his, his, his sons was coming after him. When you're a man after God's own heart, there are a lot of people who are after you. And he would go to En Gedi. And while he was in En Gedi, while he was here in these caves, perhaps, that you could see in this footage, the Holy Spirit would inspire beautiful psalms through him. It was incredible. So go to highlandcc.org connect, and you can explore the exact location that the Shulamite woman just named. All right, it's about, to get, it's about to get steamier. Look at this, verse 15. The man says, how beautiful you are, my darling. How very beautiful, your eyes are doves. She replies, how handsome you are, my love. How delightful, our bed is verdant. The beams of our house are cedars and our rafters are cypresses. I am a wildflower of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. They reciprocate in this affection and this incredible speech of one another. She could be describing the fact that they're outside, right? That they are shepherding their flocks. And she's describing, that she's describing it like she's imagining playing house with this man. She can see that their bed is verdant, this greenery everywhere that would bear fruit. That, uh, that the beams of their house are cedars, that the rafters are cypresses, that uh, she, she can picture a life with this man. She could also be speaking about a literal house in a way that to, as if to say, this man could provide an incredible, incredible life. But then she describes herself as a wildflower of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. You could see a little bit of that perhaps insecurity or it could be genuine humility that's coming out in her. I'm a wildflower of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Watch for how this imagery would also foreshadow Jesus, the rose of Sharon. Look at how he responds. Like a lily among thorns, so is my darling among the young women. It's a bit of a slam to all the other women, but it also meets her right at her place of greatest woundedness and, and loves her right there. That's a beautiful thing to be fully known and be truly loved. If you're not fully known, you can't really know if you're actually loved, but to be known, truly known and loved nonetheless, is to be loved truly. Look at verse three, like an apricot tree, she's speaking about him, like an apricot tree among the trees of the forest, so is my love among the young men. They each see the other as remarkably distinctive among all of the other 
women among all of the other men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banquet hall, and he looked on me with love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apricots, for I am lovesick. May his left hand be under my head, and his right arm embrace me. Young women of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and the wild does of the field, do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. When she gets to verse five, she says, sustain me with raisins. What's your interpretation of that verse? Uh, she really likes raisins. <laughs> There's more to it than that. There's more to it than that. Raisins or raisin cakes were distributed by kings to his armies after returning home from war so that they would then go home with their brides and then grow the nation because that's good for the nation. And she is saying, sustain me with raisins as in she wants to live off of an aphrodisiac. She says, refresh me with apricots for I am lovesick. How did we get here? Well, consider what came before, look at what comes after, and miss not the significance of the pericope. These incredible words of deep and strong, intimate attraction toward this man come right after a beautiful, beautiful testament of how loving he is toward her. In verse 5, she says, sustain me with raisins, but let's back up to verse 3. I delight to sit in his shade and his fruit is sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banquet hall and he looked on me with love. He is loving toward her. And so she is incredibly intimately attracted to him. All right, husbands or husbands-to-be, if you crave a wife who would speak to you this way, it begins with, loving your wife, loving your wife, loving your wife, the way that the man loves the woman in this text. Verse six, may his left hand be under my head and his right arm embrace me. Dr. Tommy Nelson has some famous teachings on Song of Songs. He says this is his favorite verse to teach, especially when there are prudish old ladies in the audience because he loves to look at them and ask, what do you think that verse means? And he says, they all, oh, I have no idea. I have no idea what that means. Come on, we know what it means. It's very clear what it means. All right, hey, my secular friend, I'm sorry, man. Christians have the market cornered on good, passionate intimacy. All right, these words are ancient. This is very clearly about a passionate, intimate relationship between this man and this woman. May his left hand be under my head and his right arm embrace me. She's ex perhaps either expressing the desire for her husband currently or her desire for this man physically at the time. She ends with a verse you're going to see multiple times throughout the book. Okay, it's right here in 2.7. It's going to come back in 3.5. It's going to come back in 8.4. So it is at the beginning, it's at the end, it's at the very middle. This is one of the verses that serves as a demarcation of the chiastic structure of the whole book. Young women of Jerusalem, I charge you by the wild does and gazelles in the field, do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. Some translations render it, until it so desires. When I was dating Jesse on that free day, on International Jesse Day, as we would call it, I just wanted to protect our purity because I knew, I knew that I really, really was attracted to her. And I, I knew that if we were alone together and without accountability, we would do what our bodies were designed to do. And so 
I took a measure that some may have considered extreme. And I don't look down on anybody who doesn't have that same conviction, but I wanted to obey what the spirit had convicted me to do. Um, I, I bought a house, but we didn't go there together. Um, we never went to my parents' house when nobody was there. We never went to her parents' house when nobody was there. We would just, we, we just spent so much time at Starbucks. God was getting us ready in Pensacola to come do ministry in Seattle. And my, my financial advisor from UBS at the time was like, what is happening? He like called me. It was like, Jesse, you, 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 you are spending so much money on Starbucks. Like what happened? When did, you, when did you start drinking so much caffeine? See, God was getting me ready to move to Seattle. It was because we would get together and, and we couldn't be alone. And so it was, we would go to Starbucks first thing. And then we would go to a, an amazing place that like the, the Holy Spirit has yet to dispense on the greater Seattle area just yet. It's called Cracker Barrel. Oh, it's amazing. And then after that, we would go back to Starbucks and then lunchtime would roll around. So we'd go to Quiznos and then we'd finish Quiznos and go back to Starbucks. Well, by the third trip to Starbucks of the day, we were kind of out of options. Like we couldn't go back to the house, you know, uh, I remember this one particular day, uh, it was a little bit chilly outside and the waves weren't very, we checked the surf report and it wasn't even big enough to go surfing with a nine footer. And so we just, we just went to this park, Milestone Park, and we were laying in the grass and looking at the clouds, wearing our jackets, just talking and chatting. And then I eventually drifted off to sleep, laying there right next to her. And I suddenly woke up to the sound of a familiar voice. It was Jesse's mom and some other lady's voice that I didn't recognize. And my eyes shot open. I looked to my side where Jesse was and she was gone. She'd apparently gone to the car. And then just that moment I heard my future mother-in-law say, and there he is. And so I had to get up and brush the grass off my jacket and reach my hand out to meet one of my mom's coworkers. These measures that we took to protect our purity were because of these words. Do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. Until the appropriate time. When the time is appropriate, single people, people currently gifted with singleness and called unto to marriage one day. When it is the appropriate time, it'll be exceedingly good and want to become phenomenal. But in the meantime, I don't want to hear single people of Highlands Community Church, in light of what we're studying here, ever ask the question, how far can I go physically in my dating relationship before it becomes sinful? That is the wrong question. Ask the question, how far can I run away from sin and still have a successful dating relationship? That's right, successful. How do you determine success in a dating relationship, Jesse? It is not the goal to get married in every relationship. The goal is to answer the question, is it God's will that we get married? If your objective is to answer a question, then you know the target and you know whether or not it's successful. If you can protect your purity, Whatever, whatever measures are necessary, okay? If you need to do what we did and go to Starbucks three to five times a day, hey, that's great. Shania will be there and she'll be, she'll be there to keep an eye on you guys. It'll be good accountability, right, Shania? You, you, if you need to go to Starbucks multiple times a day, man, praise God for that. If that's what it takes to protect your purity, you do it. It's worth it. Your, your purity and the purity of your significant other are worth any sacrifice. Do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. And without the confusing, overly inflated and exaggerated sense of intimacy that comes with physical closeness outside of marriage, a breakup is actually quite cordial. It's actually quite easy comparatively 
if your objective, if you have an objective, and that is to answer a question, is it God's will that we get married? Then even if you discern that the answer is no, the relationship was a success. Why was it a success? Because you answered the question, is it God's will that we get married? I, I, know, I know what the struggle is like, okay? But it's a good struggle and it's a worthwhile struggle. This, this is a good problem to have, okay? This is the problem that young men and women of holiness have. This is also the same problem that godly marriages with passionate intimacy lives have. In fact, if you don't have this problem, you have a much bigger problem. If you don't have that spark and that attraction to one another, then you're gonna have something missing in your marriage. So listen, listen to the Shulamite woman, take her advice. Do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. Do not, students, tell our leaders, I don't know what happened. All we did was go to her home alone and watch Netflix for four hours and the candlelight just got to us. And then out of nowhere, we were just suddenly tempted. I, I was blindsided. Like, come on. Do not stir up or awaken love until the right time. And when the right time comes, praise God. Look at what incredible blessings await you in the context of a marriage. Marriage is exceedingly good. It is as difficult as I thought it would be but it is greater than I ever imagined it would be. My wife can attest to this. We have an outstanding marriage. And it's all because we've based it on scripture. We studied this book during our engagement. We read every single book Lifeway Christian Stores had to offer at the time, but this was the best resource we went through. And we have striven to base our marriage on Ephesians 5. The describes... Husbands as these representatives of Christ in the relationship and wives as representatives of the church in the relationship. So the two of you together are a picture of the gospel. There are beautiful parallels. Just watch, okay? Husbands, right there in your pajama pants, I want you to stand up, okay? Okay, give the, give the Yorkie to your wife and stand up. I'm gonna ask you a question and if you can truly answer it in good conscience, I want you to say, yes, she is my bride, Okay? Do you love your bride? Yes, she is my bride. Do you love her? Do you love her? Do you love her? If she were to forsake you, would you love her still? If she were to fail you, would you love her still? If she were to stop loving you, would you love her still? Would you give yourself up for your bride? Would you go to the cross for your bride? Now, have a seat, husbands. Well done. I'm gonna do the same thing in the outdoor services. I want you to see that love between husband and a wife, as, and that goes to Christ and the church. Do you see everything that I've said about my wife, everything that the dads at home said about their brides, I hope is true of Christ's love for you. Highlands Community Church. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. And even if, even if you were to forsake him, he'd love you still. You're his bride, Christian. 
And even if you were to fail him, he'd love you still. You're his bride, Christian men and women. If you were to stop loving him, he'd still love you. You're his bride. He gave himself up for you. You're his bride. He went to the cross for you. You're his bride. And he has gone to prepare a beautiful place, a home with the family of God. You are his bride, Highlands. You are his bride forever. And my skeptical friend, if you, if you desire this kind of love, you desire this kind of intimacy in your marriage, I want you to know what marriage means. I want you to know it's a, what it's a picture of. It's a picture of the gospel, the love that Christ has for the church. And if you're not a part of the church, today is the day that you give your life to Christ and you step into love like you've never known before. If that's you, if the Holy Spirit of God is drawing on your heart, we should pray with me right now. Give your life to Christ after a song of songs sermon. Yes, God is able. And if he's doing it right now, I want you to pray with me. God, I believe you. I believe that you love the world so much that you gave your one and only son that if I would believe in him I would not die but have everlasting life I confess God that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God I confess God that the wages of that sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus I believe you Jesus the bridegroom that you are the way the truth and the life and there's no way I can come to God the Father except through you So right here and now, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Bride of Christ, would you say Jesus is Lord? Say it, Jesus is Lord. God, I believe in my heart that you rose Jesus from the dead. Now God, let me be saved. Let me be saved. Let me be saved. Let me be there on that day when we, as your bride, are presented to you spotless, without wrinkle, without blemish, washed by the water of your word from our sin and redeemed forevermore at the wedding that marks the ultimate end of all miracles, the greatest of them all. In Jesus' name, amen.